Well, hello and welcome back to Rockets Pockets. Today on the line, unfortunately not in the house sharing a beer, I have uh, uh, Greg Tate. <laughs> Nearly forgot your name there a second, Greg. <laughs> that would have just been ugly. I've known you for quite a while. Greg's a former member of the Airborne uh, Canadian Airborne Regiment and a proud member of the Royal Canadian Regiment as an infantier. And I've known the man for more than a few years. And I'd also point out at this point, he's the only other man other than me and maybe a doctor when I was a kid who's had his my penis in his hand. So with that lead over, <laughs> Greg, over to you. Um, yeah, how are you going today? How's it going today, Steve? It's going, brother. But it's not about me, it's about you. So tell, tell us about yeah. you. So I've been listening to your podcast and I've been really enjoying the episodes that I've listened to so far. Um, and it's made me, um, get a little bit introspective with some of the things that I experienced in the early days of Bosnia. I did three tours in Bosnia, uh, one under on Perfor and then the other two under NATO and, um, uh, former platoon commander of mine told me, um, that we should uh, be telling our own stories. And, uh, so this is me telling my story, uh, through you. Uh, both my experiences and how I think they've kind of impacted my life um, to date, basically. Yeah, I think I think that's a good lead in there. Um, there's eyes rolling all across the country right now. When as soon as you mentioned Bosnia, because um, they think of the end days where it's all peaceful and days off to Split and Dubrovnik and all those places, but the early days of Yugoslavia were quite ugly, and there were a lot of lessons learned there that were were either forgotten or not carried over to Afghanistan. So guys yeah, who like owned in, in Afghanistan, there's plenty of hell to pay for in Bosnia as well. Yeah, like 92, 93, when we went there, like we, there was already a battle group there. Like three RCR had uh, sent November Company down with the Van Dues into Sarajevo. That evolved into the Patricias having a battle group up in Croatia. And then I guess things were still kicking off, so they wanted to send another battle group. So it was uh, two RCR with an attachment from uh, Bravo Company, one RCR that ended up going there in 92, 93 when they were still shooting and killing each other. Right. And you got, you were there in 92 and 93. Yeah. So November 92 in, uh, finishing up in April, May 93. So we were there over the winter. Oh God. Where weren't we located? Um, pack rats, Lipic, um, Biela would seem like we were, uh, caravan of gypsies moving all over and that was all up in Croatia and then we finally got the go ahead um, to move the battle group down into uh, down into Bosnia proper and um, from there um, well the tour was kind of mismatched we really didn't have a task at hand so for the first half of the tour until we actually moved down into Bosnia we were running courses like QL4 SIGs, QL4 uh, driver courses, that kind of thing, things that we could do um, to fill the time. And it was almost like Bravo Company was kind of the bastard, redheaded stepchild of the battle group because we weren't from 2RCR. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just so headed down. and then jobs, you did a lot of training. Yeah, yeah, and it was, you know, kind of like a garrison routine up at 6, you know, blah, blah, blah. That, you know, it was like a proper day shift, even though you'd been on security the night before, you weren't allowed to lay on your cot. Um, so it was a lot of kind of crap like that that was happening. Um, so a lot of parade, we did ground, have some, a lot of parade ground mentality carried over from 
Korea and Cyprus, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And that um, reared its ugly head a few times, both in the workup training and then um, uh, once we actually got, uh, when I was in Srebrenica and uh, we were being replaced by the by golf company. Um, this was long before meant, the Dutch took over. Yeah, um, that mentality reared its ugly head like huge with people in some positions of authority that should have known better. Well, when did when did they and you come to the realization you guys were in a war zone, and uh, not laying on your cots during the day was was a well, it was quite a culture. Sh- it was quite a culture shock, even up in Croatia, because you'd see three, four houses that were fine. Then there'd be the burnt out one with the Ustashi uh, logos all over it, um, and you know that was quite common. Uh, there was people living in the dumps. Like I have pictures here at home of like. Uh, actually living in the dump and making um, shelters out of what we were throwing out and like people running to like, there was one kid that uh, one of the CQs drivers always gave him some cash for helping us unload the garbage truck. Um, So yeah, it was kind of evident right off the bat. Were you using German marks at the time? Pardon me? Were you using German marks at the time? We were, yeah. It was it was the Deutschmark. It was you know one Deutsche for a bag of chips kind of thing at the at the canteen and that. But uh, yeah, that was the start of it. And then um, once we got down into Bosnia, I mean that even carried on down there. Um, but once we hit uh, Srebrenica um, with a sign at the southern edge of town that said welcome to the world's largest death camp and it was just people walking aimlessly in the streets that was when it was like holy shit who wrote that this is real what's that who wrote that sign uh that was uh i think it was a women's council in town it was in english um i got a picture of it here at home it was in english yeah we were sent on to task for shrubanita it was supposed to be just a convoy escort it was all it was it was supposed to be you know, maybe three days, pack for five. So I had, a, you know, everyone just kind of packed a valise full of stuff with their flag jacket, their four magazines, and and uh, off we went. And we met up with our convoy in uh, actually Serbia because we crossed the bridge at Zvornik and uh, met up with our convoy the next day. Actually, interestingly enough, uh, the first night we were there, um, sleeping beside the vehicles, the Serbs, because uh, we saw the flash and we were on that side of the river, were firing uh, fire missions into Bosnia. That was like a, whoa, okay, all right. That was your first realization you were definitely in a war zone. Yeah, and, you know, the Serbs were denying that they were doing stuff. You know, information was pretty spotty, like, with what news was happening, because... It wasn't like it is now with CNN and internet and, and everything else. I mean, I got one phone call, I think the entire tour that was done phone. by, yeah, one phone call home. So, and then I made another phone call where we went up the street because when we, when we crossed into Serbia, they wouldn't let us back into Bosnia. Even, even with General Mori on there, the UN commander at the time, uh, French general, they wouldn't let us back in. Like we would try and move. And then all of a sudden you got Serb soldiers, um, pointing their AKs at you, like from standing, cause we were in one, one threes 
M113s. Um, and they would be standing in front of you and AKs like leveled right at your head, aimed at you. Or in and other cases, I was, dragging mines out in front of your vehicles. That Yeah, that happened on a regular basis too. Or, you know, you would, when they would stop us, you would sit and you would pull the binoculars out and look in buildings around you. And it's like, okay, there's a machine gun up there, like at me. And even though it was UN and, you know, we were supposed to have, you know, the rights of the UN and that to deliver aid and all this stuff, we were still held up by the thugs. And they were still, the they were did, still really. Did the thugs consist of also Croats and uh, Muslim? Uh, oh yeah. One was just as bad as the other. Yeah. One was just as bad as the other. So when did you realize that, uh, when did you, when did you first come under uh, attack? Did you, were you um, at it or shot at or what happened? Well, once we got into Srebrenica, well, actually, Chris Sharon, uh, it escapes me the name of the other young guy, Gord Morrison and Tim Perrell, they were allowed in after a while of trying to get um, us, seven of us, escorting into um, Srebrenica, like to escort this convoy. They said, no, only that vehicle can go, the Serbs. So those four guys went off and then they ended up actually getting some Tim Perel and Donnie Paris actually ended up getting wounded because um, they were doing a casualty evacuation on the sports field in town and the Serbs lobbed a 120 millimeter rocket onto it. Jesus. So Tim and Donnie um, got hurt and that's when they allowed us to switch. So then we were, the rest of us were allowed in. Um, and how many was that? How many people were left? So in? there was seven of us. Um, and what were you carrying? Tom, uh, we just had um, C7s and C9s. And then we had a platoon headquarters vehicle that had some 84 rounds, some grenades and stuff in it, but that was about it. No 50 we were really, mounted. We were really a raindrop in the barrel is what it what we were. You didn't even have 50 right? cal- cals mounted on the uh, m one. 50 cals mounted, yep. But again, under the UN rules of engagement, no rounds up the spout, right? Right. And those rules of engagement changed on a daily basis, and it was just, it was just horrendous. Like, it's, like I mentioned before, your first introduction to Srebrenica is driving through no man's land, and then uh, you see this sign, and then we pulled up at the PTT building, which was our headquarters. And PTT stands um, for what? Uh, it's the Postal and Telegraph. Okay. Um, so there was, uh, actually the Bosnian Muslims had a communications uh, detachment that was in the top floor of the building. So it was kind of hard to control who was coming and going there. So it really wasn't the greatest, but it was, the building was actually structurally sound. Now so, you didn't have to clean out any bodies to set up camp or anything like that? No, we didn't have to, but Gord Morrison, um, God rest his soul, um, he took me across the road to the hospital and showed me around the hospital. And there was a guy uh, yelling and screaming because he was getting huge chunks of shrapnel taken out of his ass. It was a local that had uh, been on a front line somewhere around the town and got shelled. So there was no anesthetic. Um, there was no real way to clean wounds or to close wounds. So they were actually burning sulfur on wounds to close them. Jesus. That's what we were told. And so you would, um, at night, you were just, you would listen, because we were right across the road, you'd hear women wailing or, you know, people in the hospital screaming. And what would normally hold uh, maybe two people here appropriately in a hospital, 
they would have six guys laying on the floor. And that smell was bad. That was, that was brutal. That's that sweet, rotten flesh smell that just, it sticks. It sticks yeah, it's, in your mind. Yeah, I never got the sweet part of that. It always was kind of overwhelming to me. But, uh, it, it was. It was very overwhelming. Like, Gord took me in there. There's that guy laying there getting the shrapnel ripped out of his ass. I'm like, okay, I'm good. I've seen it. We're out of here. Yeah. Kind of thing. Got the teacher. That's and all I so, And yeah, and then, you know, so you sit on security at night, and you'd watch the, them exchange uh, fire across top of the valley. Because Shrebenica is in a narrow valley. So you, you could hear the 50s on each side going, and you would watch the tracer go back and forth. You know? And uh, it was just kind of surreal. And at any, uh, when did you guys find you you're, you were being shelled directly? Where were you? Oh, <laughs> so um, Chris and I, Chris Sharon and I had just come off security. We did security in our building. There was unmos and um, doctors from uh, Doctors Without Borders that stayed in our building. So we provided the security, the seven of us. Um. And so it's it's like March time frame, uh, or yeah, maybe. Anyways, I can't remember the exact time of the year, but um, it was really wet. It was a super wet winter, and which is typical for that part of the area. And so Chris and I had just laid down to go to sleep. So that we're in our room, and this is a room that we have the windows gun taped. We have mattresses in the windows and then we have scop kits or like, you know, the old tarps for making trenches. Yeah. We have those taped up flimsy, to prevent for those any. Who don't know, it's a flimsy uh, green material, kind of like, um, kind of like you'd find on a cheap windbreaker. Yeah. And so we had that in the windows to help prevent any uh, glass from coming in on us. Right. If they, if it got shelled nearby. Right. Plus, we would sleep in our flak jackets with our heads in our helmets because at night, the running joke was because we would hear, we would see the flash and then you would hear the whistle overhead. And was that outgoing or incoming? And then the running joke was, well, it depends on what end of it you're on, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so kind of soldier dark humor, right? No, but this one morning, Chris and I had just gone to bed. Uh, we hear some shelling. We both kind of sit up and look at each other and go, you know, hey, that's a little close. And we're like, yeah, okay. So then we laid back down again trying to get some sleep. And uh, just then there was one round landed that sounded very close. And uh, Mike Jeffers, the platoon signaler, come into the room and he's like, uh, okay, the platoon commander wants everyone in the bunker now. And... I can't remember who said it was Chris or I. It was like, why? How close was that last one? Just then this round, I want to say it landed maybe between five to 10 meters short of the building against an embankment. And it rocked the building. Like it literally rocked the building. Mike went flat on the floor. Chris and I kind of curled up in balls. Mike peels his face off the floor and goes, how's that for fucking close? <laughs> and then he was gone. <laughs> So then Chris and I scramble into some clothes. I had taken the laces out of my boots um, to uh, to let them dry out. Mm -hmm. And so I'm running. I got a crew suit on that's not done up. I've got my helmet on, all cockeyed, and running into the bunker. And uh, we're waiting Gretchen. for everything. <laughs> What's that? Did you look like Jean Chrétien with his helmet on backwards and his kid all over the place? Probably. <laughs> probably. Um, and then we get in the bunker, and I couldn't lace up my boots. My hands were shaking that bad. Just the adrenaline. 
just the adrenaline and you and I both being in the medical field know that once adrenaline hits that fine motor control is gone. Yeah. Right. So, and that's why we in the army do our drills repeatedly so that, you know, it just becomes second nature. But yeah, that's, that was a huge wake up call. So later on that afternoon, Dave Bush, who was with us, he went out into an area where we um, used to play soccer with the kids or he did anyways. And, um, found the fuse for the round that uh, clipped the uh, top of the building. So those bastards were shooting at a building that had UN painted on all four sides, on the roof, UN vehicles out front, and a UN flag on it. So those pricks of Serbs knew what they were doing. So they had to have somebody close enough to be spotting those rounds, adjusting those rounds onto that building. Somebody in the village you're overlooking. Well, you're in a valley. So yeah, overlooking because it was, like I say, it was in a valley, right? Yeah, yeah so those not... pricks would do that. And... Or you would go out to escort a convoy. So what we would do is we would um, send one vehicle out to meet a convoy of aid when the serves allowed that truck to come in. Again, you know, it's a UN convoy. It's civilian trucks have been allowed to drive all across Bosnia. And now they get to this area where the Serbs want it. And so what they were doing is they would withhold aid on their end and then let it in at night. What happens at night? It's dark. People panic. Right? So those pricks were holding that up and then just causing chaos in town. Because at the time, too, the Americans were dropping MREs into the into Srebrenica. Okay. Um, so they would fly down from Ramstein and um, you could hear the Hercs coming because when you're on security at night, you can hear the Hercs coming and then you'd hear them, the pitch on the blades change. You could hear that they were starting to climb and it was just loose MREs out of the ass end of a Herc. And people would scramble they, out of their shelters to grab them. Yeah, people were burning lengths of garden hose, anything they could use to try and find these rations because they were dropping them by pallets, but then, unfortunately, people were getting caught under the pallets and dying. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And, of course, the Serbians are shelling them while they're trying to collect uh, rations? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep, The um, I can remember we were doing... So once the trucks came in and got unloaded... And what did the they trucks would allow refu- Pardon me? What were the trucks carrying? So the trucks would be uh, just simple flour, oil, sugar, those kinds of things. Um, Basic uh, High-energy biscuits um, that the UN would uh, distribute. Because we had a UNHCR work with, worker with us, too, Louis Gentil, a guy from Toronto. Um, he was in charge of distributing the aid. We really didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, that was, he uh, handled all that, and it would go into a central location in town. And it's it's been proven um, through the Hague and the War Crimes Tribunal that Nasser Orich and the local soldiers were really, uh, had their hands in that as well. Well, the, so again, the you know, UN didn't help in a lot of cases either. Uh, one no. of the more famous cases of the Kenyans living with the Serbians and uh, giving them food and uh, yeah. and uh, diesel. So, at any point at uh, this time in Srebrenica, did you guys get to return fire? No. You're, you just constantly lived under shelling? Yes. And at what, yeah. point, at what point did you and Walter get your uh, mention in dispatches? 
So this was after our Easter dinner. We were returning some stuff and doing a water supply. Um, and it was April 12th, 1993, 28 years ago. Um, and this is, this actually happened, um, before the Medac pocket happened. So this is another thing that, you know, it was never really, it made the newspapers, but really didn't, um, make the news. So you mentioned in dispatches, you mean? No, I mean the incident itself. Okay. Yeah. The incident itself. Yeah, no. So we had our Easter dinner. We paid to feed 30 people with seven packs of cigarettes. Um, we had all the local dignitaries come into the PTT building, president of the war council, chief of police, um, doctors. We had doctors without borders, all the unmos. So we had a, we had a decent Easter dinner. I mean, it was lamb and some potatoes and stuff. Um, but yeah, so we were driving a GMC suburban armor plated with bulletproof glass. Um, returning some stuff and the town had been taking a lot of shelling that day. Beautiful, sunny day, beautiful, sunny day. And, um, day for killing each other. Yes. And so we hear the town's getting shelled and we were the only radios that we used there because everything else was mounted in the M one threes was Motorola's and the Motorola's pretty much line of sight. So we had to leave where we were dropping stuff off, getting water, get back into an area where we could come in comms. And we said, cause they were worried where we were, of course. Um, so we let them know and we're on our way back and we rolled up as we roll through downtown. Everyone is like the streets are clear. And this is like a, you think of the Warsaw ghetto and you see people just walking the streets and stuff. That's kind of what this was like, but maybe not on the same scale. Um, everyone's hanging out under doorways, the streets are clear. So we carry on through town and then we come down to the intersection where the road from the school came out. School was a refugee center. Like the school was housing a, a ton of people and kids playing outside every day because uh, they had like little uh, soccer pitches in the yard. Yeah, It was all paved and stuff. So anyways, Walter and I drive up. There hadn't been any shelling in a while. And um, we roll up at the intersection and there's nine dead adults and I don't know how many dead kids laying in the intersection and down in the schoolyard. And one guy actually, he was, he was dead. He was deceased, was laying on his, on his stomach with his arms folded across his back and his head turned and looking at us with his eyes open. And he was the color of paraffin wax, uh, like the blood had just been drained from him. Um, but not a drop of blood. So he obviously it was, he exsanguinated inside himself just from the concussion probably. From the blast, yeah. Yeah. And so we get on the radio and we told, um, cause we were also under, we were under the command of, um, then Lieutenant Mikituk. Uh, but we were also under the command of a captain from New Zealand. So interesting fact is, this had never happened since the Korean War. The combined command, the, you mean? Yes, that, that Mikituk was actually under command, or the Canadians were under command of someone from another country, like directly under command. Oh, that's, a, that's almost unheard of. So this caused, this caused a little bit of confusion later on when it came to getting our mention in dispatches. So we get on the radio, tell them, tell Sierra Niner that um, 
we have this on the ground. And he says, are there casualties? And we say yes. And he says, load them up. So as we're getting out of the truck, more rounds landed. Um, and they landed close by because the Suburban was leaving two wheels on each side from driver's side, passenger side from the concussion. Um, I crouched down on the driver's side and with the concussion, it felt like I was going to get sucked right through the vehicle. Um, Walter, um, was loading up people into the back and, uh, he was, had a lady that he was trying to load in at the time and they both got knocked on their ass, uh, from the concussion. So he threw her in, he, you know, properly taking cover inside the vehicle. I mean, it's armor plated. Um, I went around there's we ended up getting people in the back seat and I get to get in the driver's seat and there's this uh man sitting behind the wheel I grabbed him with a scruff and I can haul them out because there's three other people in the front seat and there was a lady missing part of her uh missing part of her lower jaw that was sitting beside me as we drove down to the hospital so then we drove down to the hospital we unloaded um and then by that time Mikituk and uh Sharon um, were on their way up with the, with one of the 113s. They made the mistake of dropping the ramp, uh, to let people in. It was just habit, right? You dropped the ramp to let people in. And they got um, they just, they just started throwing bodies on the ramp. The locals didn't matter if it was dead or alive. They just started throwing bodies on and it actually broke the cable. So they drove down to the hospital, which was about seven, 800 meters, I guess, uh, dragging the ramp. And then once they got down to the hospital, they, uh, they closed the ramp. And was, so... Sorry to interrupt you. Was Gary Vigneault with you guys at that time? No, no. Uh, Dan Kiefer was the medic that was with us. I don't know him. Dan Kiefer, another uh, soldier that has left us. Yes. Yeah. He uh, he was there helping out at the hospital with triaging that at that point. All right. And so we made another trip back. We made two more trips back. And... Uh, did the same thing, unloaded the wounded and that. And then in the end, there was, um, I think, over 68 people killed that day and well over 100 uh, wounded. Yeah. Jesus. I've got the citation here that you and uh, Walt uh, got your mention in the dispatches. So it reads, Corporal Postma and Master Corporal Tate were members of a team tasked with watery supply in Srebrenica, Bosnia, Herzegovina on 12th of April, 1994 when the city was shelled by mortar and rocket barrage. The team, the team passed a site that had taken several direct hits with many casualties. Despite the continuous and extreme danger as rounds landed nearby, several trips were made to bring in civilians to the nearest hospital. These actions in dangerous circumstances were in the finest spirit of the UN's mandate. Now, in any other war, that would have resulted in a, in a medal, no doubt. But uh, the Liberal Peacenik government at the time... Uh, I think it was under Kretchen at the time you guys were there, yeah? Yeah, so there's, I'll try and keep this story short. Um, our major, Major Horn, uh, the OC of Bravo Company, once we ended up back in, uh, back in the main camp, he had us each sit down individually and write our statements. He submitted those statements because he wanted us to get recognized. He submitted those statements to the commanding officer of 2RCR, and um, the commanding officer to RCR said no. It didn't go any further. So then it wasn't until General Morion of France contacted Lewis McKenzie and asked if any of us had received any recognition. 
Um, and so he started, he started asking questions. It started a ministerial inquiry in the House of Commons. And it was after that that we were uh, awarded the mention of dispatches. And what uh, confusion did the New Zealander uh, add to that? You said there was some confusion. Well, the, uh, the fact that we had been under um, command of somebody from New Zealand. So I guess they were looking at maybe the legitimacy of the orders. I don't know. But yeah, it's uh, where my wife Sherry was working up on base. Um, uh, one of the women she worked with, her husband um, worked at the old E1, the base head shed there. And uh, he, we went to a Christmas dinner and he's like, oh, you're one of those guys. You guys are causing a lot of confusion up in E1. Um, and it was because of that. Yeah, it was simply amazing that it took, what, 10 years after uh, the MEDAC pocket before it actually became news or became reported on because the Liberals That's right, yeah. under, under, they wanted us all to think that we were uh, handing out flowers and cookies to kids. Yeah, and like, it wasn't like that at all. Like, when we would escort refugees out of Srebrenica, I mean, they would drag mines on boards across the road so that we would have to stop so that they could let more people get onto the trucks. You know, and like you're seeing, I can remember one kid, God, I don't know if he ever made it or not. He was like a 13, 14 year old boy and anybody his age and up, if the Serbs caught them on the trucks, they were threatened with death. It was like, if we find any males on the trucks, they're dead. And I can remember sticking my head up, making sure that there was no males in that truck. And I saw this kid and I was telling him to get off, but he was dressed up like a woman. And I don't know if he ever, ever made it or not. Jesus. You know, you go to, um, kind of ranting here, but you go down to load up the trucks in Srebrenica and you're just passing people over your heads. I remember the first time we did it, um, I, when we were leaving and going back to our building, cause it was complete and utter chaos, this woman tried to hand me her baby. And like, I, I, I launched onto her cursing and swearing just cause I didn't know how to deal with it. Right? Because there's nothing you could really realistically do. No, there was nothing we could realistically do. I remember and, just a similar story. My uh, grandmother was a refugee during the Second World War, and one of her um, uh, memories was the same thing. Uh, there was a woman, uh, she was dying, and it was, um, you know, take my baby. And they couldn't take the baby because it was everything they could do to survive themselves. So that's that, right, yeah. that was one of, the, one of her uh, memories that was, well, horrific, frankly. Yeah, like it's just, and these memories, like I, I have a drink every April 12th and have a toast. Because um, like I say, we're going on 30 years now. And from those experiences that I've described to you, I think back and I'm like, hmm, with my girls, did I shortchange them by not recognizing that I had changed, right? Because, you know, the changes that people go through, like PTSD, it's a, it's, a, it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Were you diagnosed Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, broadly, yeah. Broadly, yeah. And so Brianna, my oldest, I mean, she was only six months old when I went away on that tour. Yeah. So, you know, had I recognized, and there was no mental health support back in those days, 
I mean, my when we got back out of that out of Srebrenica, uh, I remember one of the questions was uh, the MO asked. He goes, "So did you make any friends there?" I'm like, "Yeah," and that was it. They were more concerned about our physical health than our mental health, but that was the state of the time, right? Yeah, I mean, and then it wasn't until the mid '90s when. Uh, a couple of high-profile uh, cases of uh, PTSD breakdown, and you're well aware of uh, one of them, Mark, um, that PTSD started to gain awareness. Right. Up until then, you know, it was and, just carry on as if you were normal. Yeah, and it's and it's bred into us, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna, you know, bred into us as soldiers that really, I mean, you suck it up, right? And that starts from the, you know, I've heard stories of guys finishing their basic para with busted ankles. Um, I can remember, you know, jumping, landing heels, ass heads, seeing stars, looking for somebody like you in the DZRV to get some Advil or something because my head's killing me and having a headache for three days while I'm on exercise. Well, that was a freaking concussion. Meanwhile, I was but you wouldn't say concussion. anything. <laughs> You wouldn't say anything because you didn't want to let the other guys down. Yeah. You know, and no, so no. I think the mental health thing too is the same way. You don't want to, you know, is it am I weak? Is it this? Is it that? And um, it's not. It's a change that's happened within you that you need to you need to address. And it can be addressed on so many different levels in so many different ways. Well, you need to recognize it first. Yeah, yeah, it's like really it's like the alcoholic needs to say that he's an alcoholic. Right, and you you need to realize that you have issues. I mean, a lot of times you're carrying on with life um as if everything was normal, but meantime you're maybe losing your temper with your loved ones or frustrated yeah. and and you don't you don't realize that you're that it's increased or you deny that yeah, it's increased. That's right, and that's where I am now on my own journey through this is you know, recognizing and, you know, and, and, and hooking myself up to go, you know, talk with my family doctor. So were you diagnosed with PTSD? No, no. Um, I consider myself very fortunate that I haven't had, um, the experience that a lot of guys have had. What, what would uh, you, uh, chalk that up to? Like, say, why, why would you escape the PTSD and, uh, someone else wouldn't, what, what do you think, uh, the difference might be? That's I don't tough, know. I think it might question. be just in, I, I, I think it's inherently in who the person is, their physical, mental makeup. Um, maybe it has something to do with, you know, their childhood, how they were raised. Um, I, um, I relied heavily on my training when the incident was happening. Um, so I think my training had a lot to do with it as well. And perhaps, and everyone Everyone can compartmentalize to different parts of their life. And what do you mean by that? Like I, you can separate your work from your home. You can separate your hobby from your home. Those kinds of things. Like um, I'm able to, I do it now. I mean, I work in Emerge here in Pembroke now, and that part of my life stays there because I don't need to bring that stuff home. Right. 
Yeah, it's. I think it's a little harder to uh, move from a war zone. It's one thing to work in emergency and see some some shit that you that you see in emergency, but it's another to you know live under under constant threat of death or dismemberment for six or seven months and not bring that home somehow. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen guys that. Um from the tours, like the early tours and um, Afghanistan, again, where I work, um, where alcohol has become a huge issue. Yeah. Right? So there's a substance abuse part that comes into play now, and um, that's a hard road to hoe, too, because not only do you have those memories and those things that, you know, you're reliving it and wishing you had made different decisions, you you got that now with the substance abuse that's causing you problems. Well, and alcohol has always been such a big part of the military lifestyle. I mean, all of our get-togethers, our functions are alcohol-fueled. Christmas dinners. Oh, God, I, you know. Yeah, I can remember three commando smokers every Friday down at CQ stores with the beer. Oh, yeah, you come out of the field and CQ would have a bunch of beers on ice for you. Clean yeah, your weapons yeah. and drank beer. <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. kind of miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you just think it was um, basically luck of the draw. You had some good training, which you relied on. You had a good yeah. physical and mental health going in. And uh, would you say you just got lucky, luckier than some did? Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I, got, I have a positive outlet when um, I'm starting to feel stressed about anything here at home or um, at work and that is I cycle like that's my, that's my vent. Right. Or, you know, have a bad shift at work. Um, I walk to, to and from work. So, you know, get on the headphones, slam on some motorhead, ACDC, whatever it happens to be. And just, uh, you know, burn that energy walking home. We could, um, we could, you definitely need some sort of outlet. And I, for me, physical activity is always a big part of that. Um, we could we could talk about the horror stories of Srebrenica for for hours yet, I'm sure. But uh, what was the good that you took away from Srebrenica? Um, that even in such trying circumstances, uh, people can be hospitable. Um, we would walk the town on patrols and stuff and be invited into people's houses to have coffee with them. And these are people that have to stand in line for water. They're, you know, they're trying to get wood without getting shot and killed. Um, uh, I remember (laughs) across the, uh, near where we stayed, there was an apartment building and, uh, lefty, he was the chief of police. He lost his arm in the war. Um, (laughs) his left arm by any chance. Yes. Um, so, but I got invited to his place to have a bath, right? So we're in this place almost a month. There's no bathing and all that. And I got like a couple of inches of water in the tub and it's water that they've heated up on their stove. So it's wood they've used, the water that, you know, and it's just, people can be hospitable, right? And, you know, we ended up that we would, if we were walking through town, we would, take our canteens, extra canteens and bottles of water and, uh, and coffee. And, uh, if we got invited in, we would bring our own water and coffee and leave it behind as a gift. Yeah. Yeah, we would. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, we found the same thing. I mean, I went to Bosnia much later, but the uh, the hosp- hospitality factor was always there. It didn't matter what condition these people were in. I remember one old lady we went to chop wood for, and she lived in a three-sided house, and uh, the engineers were trying to help that out too. But her, her husband had lost the leg in the landmine, and so he, he wasn't any good to, to help out at the house. But whenever we came by, she always made sure she had some schlevo, <laughs> homemade, yeah. homemade schlevo, which I learned to love. And uh, or coffee and some biscuits or bread or whatever they had. I think I brought you to a house where it was like the ninety-year-old couple and their seventy-year-old daughter were living there. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we were on one of those tours. Yeah, that was Dramar. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> and there again, too, the hospitality. Right. Yeah. I took that lady, and again, that was ninety-eight, I think. But still, yeah. the hospitality was there. I took her a can of Tim Hortons coffee, and she wouldn't open it. Yeah, because it came from Canada, so I made a point of opening it the one day, so she had no choice but to use it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was we had that we had that big ra- 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 raucous uh, Christmas party where the young lieutenant had his room trashed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that yeah yeah that was that was quite well. That was the year we ended up uh, Christmas Day sitting up on the Bosnian-Croatian border waiting for the big offensive that never happened. Yeah, because the uh, well, the big thing was when the flag disappeared, national flag. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. going to be some ugliness caused over that, so the flag did reappear, yeah. but it, it took its time reappearing. <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, that was, we originally that was actually New Year's. We went in because Christmas Day was when we were supposed to go in there originally, and then it got canceled, probably because the government it was a high risk operation, and the government uh, yeah. didn't want people getting killed on Christmas. I think that was probably the way yeah. it was canceled because we ended up on New Year's Eve uh, sitting up on that up on that uh, hill waiting for the Croatians to come across the, the border. That was also that young Croatian uh, that interpreter we ran into up there. Where, so we're sitting around the fire. And one of the interpreters starts talking. I said, Jesus, man, you could be from Canada with that accent. He said, I am. I'm from Toronto. <laughs> I said, what the fuck are you doing here? He said, well, the war broke out and I was traveling around and I thought, well, my his par- parents were Bosnian, so he thought he'd go and join up with the Bosnian military or whatever. I guess that didn't work out, so he became an interpreter for the UN. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, one of the gentlemen that said he it was going to be an honor to serve our Easter dinner in Srebrenica, um, had been living in Germany and came home to visit family and got caught in, caught there when the war started. Well, another, yeah. another thing about, uh, I know I met a couple of Serbians on an English course while I was on a course in uh, Borden, became quite good friends with two of them. And the one guy had been an intelligence officer for, um, uh, for, for the Serbians so he would have been a young, you know, lieutenant at the time. And when the S- S- Serbians uh, took over uh, Srebrenica and, uh, you know, created that big massacre uh, after the Dutch had to pull out, which was a shame, he, he said, yeah. I asked him, I said, what happened there? And he said, well, it wasn't supposed to be a massacre originally. What happened was they had some drunken airborne, you know, that's all we see airborne guys, some drunken paratrooper <laughs> officers, uh, let them in, get carried away, and they got drunk, and somebody got shot, and then somebody else got shot. And the officer just frankly lost control of the men, and uh, that's where the uh, the the massacre started. He said it was no excuse, but uh, that that's yeah. what happened. It wasn't it wasn't a planned op- operation. I mean, at least that's what he said. I believed him. 
Yeah, well, alcohol played a big part with them because I remember going up to meet a convoy uh, up in Potichari, and when you would go to Potichari, you'd see the the wires going out for the command detonated stuff. You'd see D30s in the hill. You'd see tanks in the you know in the distance and whatnot. And and I showed up. Um, I guess uh, one of the Serb commanders that said there's going to be no more. I think it was Mladic. No more Canadians in Srebrenica unless it's over my dead body and the dead bodies of my family. And so I show up to meet a convoy, do-do-do-do-do, you know, UN hat on, no mag on my weapon. And there's this guy, he's mad because I showed up, and I'm staring down the barrel of an AK, you know? And this guy's loaded, I mean, we had no interpreters. Through hand signals, we got the, I got the gist that the guy was loaded. They took his weapon away, kicked him in the ass, and sent him on his way. But, yeah, it was troops. Troops could get out of control very easily. What, what other uh, good thoughts do you remember from Bosnia? Um, do you feel that you guys accomplished anything? No. That might have been a loaded question there. Yeah, uh, what were you? What no, are you I hoping don't. to ex- to uh, achieve? Well, I hope we did some good with um, helping broker like Kazovacs uh, or refugee evacuations out of Srebrenica, like out of this so-called safe haven, right? Right. Before the massacre happened, there I know that there was truckload after truckload of people that we got out of there. I know that we as Canadians were held in very high regard with a lot of respect for what we were trying to do. Um, But honestly, seven guys in a town of 30,000 people that are all refugees, that this area had like a 6,000 person population before the war. Um, We were a raindrop in the rain barrel. You had how many Um, guys there? Seven. Jesus. And then the rifle company came in, and that was part of the negotiated ceasefire, which to me was the beginning of the end for Srebrenica. Yeah, they just stockpiled more weapons in the area. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like with these stories, I've even been called uh, called on it by uh, members of my own regiment. Um, I put something up on one of the RCR things there on Facebook uh, a couple years ago, and... Uh, you know, some details and whatnot. And this guy's like, yeah, nobody ever did that. I was on that tour, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, go to your regimental webpage and check the honors and awards section. Yeah. And then there was nothing else after that. <laughs> we, we have to acknowledge um, as well, too, that like each tour does something different. Each soldier experiences something different. Right. And just, you know, we can't blow each other off. No, because no. we are in a we are in a brotherhood, whether we like it or not. Until Valhalla and beyond, we're we're part of a brotherhood. Yeah, it's not a dick measuring contest. It's like you say, we all experiencing. We might experience the same event differently. You know, that's I mean, right. How how you perceive uh, the risk of death or dismemberment of a shell dropping nearby, and how I might perceive it. You know, I might say, "Fuck, that was way too close to me. I never want that to happen again." Other guys might say, "Fuck, let's get this this thing going," you know. Yeah, I mean, the but the memories are changed as well as the years go by. Um, yeah, but some some things like the smell, um, they don't leave you. Yeah, 
there was a pine tree that was cut off with a blast or shrapnel or something. And to this day, like that intense pine smell, um, will get to me. Um, when I'm cycling out here in the Ottawa Valley, like outside Pembroke and, and whatnot, if somebody's burning garbage, that smell comes back. So it's always there, just kind of in the background. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing at that, but it, it's true. It is back there. And uh, I was talking to a, a girl the other day and she was, she's a veteran and she was saying how, how she does certain things now. And, uh, you know, like a loud, loud noise triggers her hypervigilance kind of thing. And uh, she goes, I get jumpy. And around the table, nobody understands what I'm jumpy about. And I said, move back to Petawala. Everybody around the table will jump and everybody will understand why, yeah. why you're jumpy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, I mean, there's definite, there's definite good that can come out of a war. I mean, it's... It, it, those that experience it, I think, um, maybe not as as victims of uh, of a shelling as a, a civilian, because you'd feel pretty helpless. But um, I, I think it it changes you, and it sometimes changes you for the better. I mean, you're more you're more grateful for what you have at home. I think. And I, oh yes, definitely. Yep. You know, you're somebody's yeah. out of, you know, during the pandemic, the big toilet paper rush came on. You know, I'm going. <laughs> I've used my sleeves on my shirts before. I can do it again, but what? What's this important? The toilet paper all about? You know, it's just, it just yeah. didn't strike me as a uh, as a um, necessary evil kind of thing. <laughs> so, anyways, back back to you. You said everybody should tell their own story. What part of the story haven't you told yet? Um, what? Um. God. So, um, again, this is linked to mental health. Um, when we came back from the tour, they got us on one of the first flights out, uh, the seven of us. And then we came back and we got, uh, you know, dag back in, whatever you want to call it. We got cleared from base, cleared to go. Um, we only got two weeks vacation, <laughs> two weeks leave. That's all we got. And then, um, so they send this guy, I mean, I was glad to stay in Petawawa, but they sent this guy who got, you know, shelled pretty much on a daily basis in this place um, to go work with uh, cadets that summer. So, and he wasn't ready yeah. to work with cadets. Yeah, and then, like I say, two week it was it was an easy tasking. Thank goodness it was here in Petawawa. I didn't have to go away. That would have been worse. Um, but yeah, it's just, and then you know, again, kind of uh, completing the final PO you know, getting shelled all the time. And then uh, career board wise, career manager wise, not even rating in one RCR really, because you weren't back in Canada. <laughs> no, <laughs> you were actually doing your job in a war zone, not fucking yeah, like, painting the rocks. You know, so, but uh, I, 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 Steve, I would actually go back and do it all over again. Yeah, and that's been, crazy as that sounds. That doesn't sound crazy at all. Every without without exception, everybody I spoke to, no matter what their degree of uh, mental injury or horror stories they've experienced, it each and every one said they wouldn't miss it for the life of them. They'd do it again, and then so would I. I mean, my yeah. goals were all all relatively uh, um, quiet. You know, nothing terribly horrific, and uh, 
I mean, probably probably the worst things I saw I saw in civilian uh, emergency rooms. <laughs> and I, I'm pretty sure you can relate to that. Uh, yeah, but uh, and and everything that I learned there learned like in my time in the army, um, you know, both formally and informally. Like I can remember it. it you know, you know, some I remember somebody saying something on uh, I think it was my six A. You know, panic causes casualties, right? Yeah. So I can remember clear as a bell um, before getting on the radio to tell uh, Major Jamie what we had seen at the intersection. I can remember running through my head what I was going to say before I said it on the radio. And so that is even, you know, that lesson learned has even transpired into um, my career now as a nurse. Um is stop, think, take five, ten seconds. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be. It's not gonna make a difference either way. Yeah. Before you make your decision. Yeah, you know, don't just don't just rush blindly in. No, no. And we've all had those experiences, and in, in with our time in in the in the army, whether you know you as a medic, me as an infantry, someone as a gunner or engineer or whatever. Those are life lessons that we take with us, right? And hopefully, remember so we don't keep repeating them. Because there's always I didn't learn that, that one yet. guy. <laughs> it's usually me. <laughs> so <laughs> we should be having a beer. Um, yeah, or or a good scotch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a few of those. Once this pandemic's over, you can swing by the house and I'll open up the cabinet for you. All right. So, we will do that. All right. So I guess uh, on that note, we'll say a positive. Well, I don't know. You've just been pretty positive. <laughs> I mean, cons- considering the uh, horrors you experienced, you've come away from it a uh, a better man, a more thoughtful man anyways. Although you were I always think pretty so, thoughtful. Yeah. I think so. Um, and like you say, it happened early on enough in my career that I could use, you know, use those experiences, you know, and, and, and pass them on, you know? Yeah. You know, the- I remember with my time at... Uh, the Canadian Special Operations Regiment. Try not to use acronyms. Um, whenever I would mention, a, well, here's a Bosnia story, the guys there would roll their eyes. But the simple fact was that was a nasty place to serve or potential for nastiness. And for many people serving there, they they learned lessons not quickly forgotten. and Nor should they be forgotten, just because the newer war is sexier. That's right. And I mean, the newer wars, at least, you know, you were allowed to defend yourself. Yeah. Right. Like that was, that's one huge negative with, uh, those, well, pretty much all those tours. Cause you, you know, you almost had to be 150% certain that, you know, what you were going to shoot at was a combatant that had, had attempted to kill you, um, or had killed someone beside you. Like that was one, like that's one real big negative out of all those tours was, you know, you know, if I was going to return fire, it had to be 150% that it was, you know. Yeah, you couldn't just shoot a guy who stopped shooting at you and then started to run away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I listened to another podcast and someone that had been in Afghanistan actually gave soldiers that did those early tours in Bosnia, uh, said they deserve a lot of credit just um, because they weren't allowed to return fire. He said, I I could pull a trigger when I felt threatened, um, and they couldn't. No, you pretty much had to go through uh, New York to get permission to fire by that time. Well, I was long gone. 
in preparation for today, I pulled out my photo album and I still have my rules of engagement card and it's almost a complete eight and a half by 11. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember them changing frequently. So anyways, Craig, on that note, another another positive note, I suppose, we'll uh, let you go. Just stay on the line while I uh, read this off. And uh, All right. Well done. Come back anytime you got a story to tell. I'm ready to hear it. And plenty of other <laughs> it's people been are. Great. It's been great talking to you. What's What's been great is watching these uh, interviews go around the world. Like some guy in Oman, Jordan, uh, has listened. Some guy in uh, Bangladesh has listened. Um, you know, so you never know who's listening to these things. And hopefully it'll make a difference to somebody somewhere up the line. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Although another soldier to suicide a couple of days ago. Yes. Yes. So, so there's still, there's still people out there suffering. So if you, if you can, and you know, somebody who's hurt and drop them a line, say hello and, uh, you know, reach out, reach out and let them know there's somebody there for them if they need it. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I got a couple of old airborne buddies that, uh, did Rwanda and, uh, that's always been my thing with them. Like, I mean, I went to one RCR when they were there, but, um, I always make it a, known to them that any time, day or night, give me a call. Yeah, absolutely. Don't push them, but make sure that the door's left open, that they can walk through it. That's right. Okay, That's on right. that note, we'll sign out. I'll say thank you all for listening. Live life today. You don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And be good to each other out there, people. Have a good one. Thanks for listening.